Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Hemingway. Eichmann. Ugh, yuck, man. Hello and welcome to the second part of episode 83 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that races through post-war history and the reasons why the world today is as it is, all done through the lyrics of a number one smash hit for Billy Joel. I am Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, on this podcast, we love our minds expanded and astonished. And today is a really special episode because last week we heard the story of Adolf Eichmann, one of the most loathsome of all characters to appear in our podcast so yes. far. The worst that humanity has to offer is pretty bad, but there is goodness out there. There is. Yes. And that is why today we are talking to somebody who experienced the Holocaust. She got a lucky break because she escaped Germany via the Kindertransport at the age of four in 1939. She is here today to talk to us about her experiences. Welcome, Ruth Barnett. Thank you very much. I'm not the only one. About 10,000 children were rescued by Britain Amazing. on the Kindertransport. Yes. All under 18. Incredible. And so you were very, very young, age four. Did you have a sense, even at that young age, of the enormity of leaving your home or, or even a glimmering of the significance of what was going on via the Holocaust? I didn't because I had my brother with me. My brother, three years older than me, knew how to handle me. I don't know how he managed it at age seven. Mm. He developed suddenly a skill of calming me down. He would manage to answer any question I asked, and I always questioned everything. Yeah. And even though I learned afterwards that some of his answers were nonsense, <laughs> yeah. he calmed me down. Yes. So I really didn't suffer the sheer horror of it at the time. That hit me much later. However, you must have been very confused about the fact that apparently your parents were relinquishing you. What were your feelings about that? Whilst my brother was there, I could feel that everything was okay. I've only been able to unravel it later, the enormity of it. And I've come to the conclusion that the only way a little four-year-old can possibly experience that sort of a dislocation in life is that I'm not good enough. Uh, they don't really want me. What was it that your your mother and father said to you as you said your goodbyes to them in 1939? I don't remember saying goodbye to them. Either we didn't say goodbye or it was just too much for me to remember. There, There is a, 
a blank layer. And it must have been incredibly confusing, like just in terms of the language you're coming as a young German girl to Britain. Did you have any way of communicating in a new language? Martin, three years older than me at the time, Your brother. seven, mm-hmm. was given some English lessons to prepare. I wasn't. I don't know why. I could have learnt some English at age four. Sure. So he was my translator. <laughs> when you don't speak your first language, you learn a second one very quickly. And my brother said to me, look around. There are soldiers. They're English soldiers. If they hear you speaking German, they'll shoot you. Mm. I believed him. Oh, gosh. I never spoke another (laughs) word of German. Tough love. And if you don't use a language, you can learn another one takes its place. English is my first language. I totally forgot German, and later I had to struggle to relearn it. Mm. Wow. So when you first arrive in England, are you sent to live with a foster family straight away? Yes, we first lived with a rector and his wife, a kindly elderly rector who was gentle and lovely, but we only saw him occasionally when he took us for walks in the countryside. His wife was a tartar. Was she? (laughs) I was terrified of her. Why was she so terrifying? I don't know. She was a small, compact woman. (laughs) They're the worst kind. And, yeah, I guess (laughs) her smallness meant she had to be fierce and up to it. Tell me about it. Was she really strict? Because for you two, for you and your brother Martin, you've already gone through this enormous shock. And your kids, you know, you need love and you need affection or you need stability. So it must have been particularly hard to arrive in this strange country, already totally confused. You're talking in the 21st century. Okay. This was way back. A roof over their heads, warm clothes, enough food. What more could a child need? With your first foster family, do you recall a feeling like, I'm stuck here forever, this is my new reality? Or did you understand that it was part of a a longer journey. I had no conception of forever. Mm. I think at that age, you sort of accept the present as being the world. Right. And you don't think in terms of past and future so much. And the past had simply disappeared. But uh, it was important that my brother was there. I'm fully aware I wouldn't have survived psychologically uh, without my brother. Let's circle back to how the kinder transport came to be. You were born in 1935, and eight months later, under the Nuremberg Laws, you lost your German citizenship because your father was born Jewish. So that was the beginning of what would become the final solution in the Holocaust. How was the kinder transport devised? I think it was the Quakers behind the movement to get the children out. And certainly every child had to be sponsored. That is, somebody had to pay £50, uh, which was a lot of money, probably 5000 in today's money. Wow. The children all had to be sponsored, and the Quakers sponsored a lot of 
children and sponsored us. Were all of the children who were evacuated in this way, did they all come to the United Kingdom? No, I think there were children taken into other countries, but I don't think it was anything as large as the kinder transport to England. Though I think there was a parallel movement to get some of the children to the United States, but it's not as well known and it probably wasn't as large. And what about your parents? What did they do once the kids were shipped off? Thinking back with adult eyes, of course, I think it's instinctive to want your children to survive if you fear that you have no chance. And I think my parents thought they had little chance. My father got away to Shanghai in good time And my mother, who wasn't Jewish and wasn't in as much danger, didn't leave Germany. Oh. She wasn't Jewish, so, you know, they weren't out to get her, though they probably wouldn't have had much compunction if she got in their way. Was there any way that your parents, having sent you and your brother to England, was there any way they could stay in contact? Could they send letters? Could you exchange anything at all? We did have letters until war broke out. We came over in February, I think it was, 39. War broke out in September. So we had a few letters and then it stopped. No communication whatsoever. So they had no idea how you and your brother were or even where you might be in England. Exactly. And we had no idea whether they were alive. It's an extraordinary thing to go through yeah. at that age. Yeah. What were, apart from your, the love and protection of your brother Martin, what were the other things that kept you going in those first few months, in those first few years? Well, I was a very inquisitive child. The world was brand new and here was a new experience and so many interesting new things. So I sort of had the capacity to block my fears and anxieties as long as my brother was there. I think he probably shouldered the anxiety for both of us and protected me. You went through a series of foster families, three, I believe. Yeah. And every time you were installed with a new family, it must have been incredibly disorienting. Did you have any expectation that you would become part of the family that they would adopt you? No, there was never any idea of adoption, though I pretty much remember thinking how nice it would be to actually be part of the family, but I knew I couldn't. I I wasn't part of the family, and there were certain things that I wasn't involved in. But I had a lot. I I was actually very happy with what I had. I don't know how and why, but I had the capacity to live in the moment and enjoy what was available and block out what wasn't. I wonder how much of that was your natural personality and characteristics and how much of that was just an instinctive reaction to the circumstances you found yourself in. I think it was mainly my brother. If he was there, I could cope. And uh, I could ask him any question. He always had a calming answer, even if it was ridiculous, as I found out 
some of it was later. Did you ever personally feel in danger because of being Jewish? Because, of course, that was the big idea in Germany, that you could lose your life because of an accident of birth or a religious conviction. And I'm wondering if that was ever an awareness. I know you were very young, but was there a sense that you were set apart from other people once you were in Britain? I had no idea what Jewish meant. I was sheltered from it. It wasn't talked about. I vaguely knew that we were in England because Germany didn't like the Jews, but I had no idea what a Jew was. In my late teens, I had to find out uh, what all this stuff about being Jewish was about. Tell us about reconnecting with your parents. When did that happen? Quite a bit after the end of the war, four years after 1949. When my father came back to Germany from Shanghai, he wanted to reunite the family. By that time, I was 14, and I felt very English. I had been raised through the war with constant news about how awful the Germans were. Sure. No way did I want to go to Germany. It broke my parents' hearts that I didn't want to go back to Germany. My brother happily went back to Germany because he was seven when we came over and he had an image in his mind of Germany being his first home. Yeah, it's a homeland for him. I had no such image in my mind. I was four and there's a big difference between four and seven. My first home was England. I had shut off the past. Why should I want to be dragged to Germany of all places that had kicked me out for being a Jew? And and add to that, in a funny sort of way, your success story about the kinder transport. You were transplanted and you thrived in your new home. Yes, absolutely. So the fact that you didn't want to go back and you didn't have a connection to Germany and, sadly, with your parents, actually was a healthy thing for you as a young woman. But it nearly broke their hearts that I just couldn't adjust to Germany again, like my brother was able to. And so did you end up going back to Germany? No, I flatly refused. I can imagine how your parents felt that. I mean, I can, from everything you said, Ruth... Your experience sounds extraordinary, and, I, and I'm almost living it with you. But now I'm thinking of how your parents would have felt, because I'm sure through all the horrors and the tribulations of the pre-war period and then the, the war itself, they would have had one moment in mind, and that would have been the point where they're back together yes. with you and your brother. I can see their point of view now as an adult. I couldn't as a teenager. Mm. In that period when you were living in England and the war was raging, did you have a sense of what was happening? How much awareness was there in the UK of what was happening to German Jews and Hungarian Jews and and other unwanted people in the Nazi regime? The general atmosphere at that time in Britain was not in front of the children. I knew bad things were going on 
and I wanted to know more, but uh, you just didn't talk in front of the children. It was a difficult time during the war because uh, Britain was in a bad way during the war. And where were you in Britain? Were you in a city or in the country? In the countryside. Our foster families were all in the countryside. Okay. So you weren't, your areas weren't being bombed, strafed with German Not directly. We saw it all on the news, of course, Mm -hmm. and in the newspaper. But um, I never felt frightened in the way that it must have been terrifying for people in cities. Mm. Can you remember how you felt on VE Day in 1944? So you're what, you're nine then? Um, so you're still pretty young, but did you get a sense of the excitement and the the general sense of occasion in the country? This, in relief. This, of relief, yeah. Absolutely. By then, I considered myself 100% British, English, and Germany was that nasty place we fought in the war. And I joined in just like all the other British children. When did you first discover that both your parents were alive and well? I can't recall. I can't recall. But I do remember a feeling of not wanting my life complicated again. I sort of hoped that they wouldn't be. It would turn my life upside down again, as it did because, of course, they wanted me back in Germany. And I felt thoroughly English and refused to go. I'm wondering about the fact that your father, who was a judge, had taken out a court order to bring you Mm. back to Germany. How were you informed of this? Well, I didn't understand what was going on at the time. My foster mother had to actually take me to Germany and leave me there. And that was the biggest betrayal of all. How old were you then? 1949, 14. Right. So you were just dropped off in this foreign, hostile, as you're concerned, country with virtual strangers, your parents? And I reacted very badly. I would run off and disappear and not come back home for a couple of days. Where were you when you ran off? Where did you go? In the woods. You must have been so angry. I I felt disappointed and abandoned. It felt as though nobody considered my side of it. I was a thing that had to do what other people decided, and I was at a very sensitive teenage situation. I really couldn't cope. And what about your brother Martin? Was he also already there with your parents? My parents decided that my brother should finish his education in England. Oh. So they let him stay in England. Right. Now, if they had made him come at the same time, Martin would have said to me, don't be so silly behave yourself. And I would have been able to with Mm. his support. I see. But to be separated from Martin at that point, I couldn't cope. I went berserk. I ran away in the woods and didn't come back for a couple of nights. It must have driven my parents crazy. 
And how long did this go on for? Until they let me come back to England, just under a year. And when you came back to England after spending that year in Germany, how did you decide where to live, where to go? Well, I went back to my foster family and... um, The ones who dumped you off with your parents when you didn't want to go. Well, they had no choice on a court order. And I think I understood the court order. And I was desperate to get back to England. So I promised I would come out for every school holiday. And I, I don't know why, but I always kept promises... If I ever made a promise, I think that was my brother's influence. Mm. I think he taught me that, that I could rely on his promises. And therefore, if I made a promise, uh, I would keep it. That makes complete sense to me. Um, I'm really interested, Ruth, in the friendships that you had with people in England. I love the story about the second foster family that you're with. We've got five kids. Mm. Sounds like a total contrast to that miserable woman you were with first of all tartar the tartar um and i love i love the sound of your friendship with joan tell us about joan well joan and i were the same age and we did everything together we were mad on horses there were horses in the fields and um i developed a love of horses and we made hobby horses you just get a big thick stick and you make a little head for it and reins and (laughs) we used to gallop around everywhere on our hobby horses. Whinnying. Yes, yes. (laughs) There's something about animals, isn't there, I think, for for children who've been through any form of trauma can often take solace in spending time with animals because they're reliable and they give you affection back. It's a very simple relationship. Yes. At first it was rabbits. The Goodricks had rabbits and uh, I would love those fluffy, soft Mm. rabbits. I'm interested in when you came back to Britain, you got a little older and as you said earlier in our conversation, you met a young man who was Jewish, who you later ended up marrying. Can you talk to us about what that was like, because at that time you weren't Jewish, is that right? Mm. And tell us about the reaction of your parents. Well, my father became Christian. Was it as a self-preservation thing? Well, I thought it was a self-preservation thing to preserve the family, but he took it very seriously. And when I decided to become Jewish, He took it as a direct attack on him, which it certainly was not. Mm. I was just interested in my Jewish origins, and um, I happened to find a Jewish boyfriend. I don't know how much that was chance or or what, but my father took it as a direct attack on him, which was quite startling for me because I'd never, never, ever meant it that way. No. Tell us about exploring that that part of your identity then as a Jewish woman as you grew older. I was intrigued by Judaism from the beginning. I had to find out what this was all about because it had made such a huge impact on my family. 
And uh, out of curiosity, I've always had insatiable curiosity, I was attracted. And then when I happened to find, I don't know how to describe it, a Jewish boyfriend, I became more and more interested. And I had to actually convert I wasn't accepted as Jewish, which I was furious about. Yeah, especially everything that you'd gone through and yeah. suffered and the way yeah. you'd been punished by your and home And then country. the Jewish community didn't accept yeah, me Yeah, like, Jewish. what do you got to do here to, <laughs> you know, to get a seat at the table? Was there a, a sense from your boyfriend that it was important to him for you to convert? Or was it just a natural feeling that you wanted to bring both of your lives together? Well, we couldn't have married in the synagogue and we couldn't have been, well, we probably wouldn't have been accepted by the Jewish community if I hadn't. Mm -hmm. And I was so intrigued with Judaism mm -hmm. that I wanted to anyway. And what was your mother's feeling about your conversion? She was much more accepting. Mm. She calmed my dad down that after all I'd been through, she wasn't surprised. <laughs> right. So, Ruth, you became a teacher. You then became a psychotherapist. How much of those career choices was a result of what you'd gone through personally, do you think? Well, as a child, I didn't want to confront it. It was something I kept hidden, particularly from other children. Mm. I didn't want to be questioned. I didn't want to have to talk about it. Later on, I'm only too happy to help people who are going through something similar. Their lives turned upside down. And I think my own experience certainly had a bearing on what I decided to do with my life. When Kate and I were learning about Adolf Eichmann last week, Ruth, I think one of the things, one of the many things we struggled with, Katie, was trying to, in some ways, rationalise something which you couldn't rationalise, yeah. the horrors of the Holocaust. So, Ruth, try and help Katie and me out here. When we think about the horrors that were perpetrated by the Nazi regime, it must surely colour your view of humankind. So how do you maintain a sense of optimism about people and the world when you've experienced the things that you've experienced? I think the human race is on a journey that they've only so far half mustered. In fact, I call the human race homo semi-sapiens. <laughs> we've come a long way from living in the caves, but we've got just as far still to go looking at the way we treat our own kind. No other animal species treats its own the way that the human race cuts off groups of its own and gives it them a hard time. And I guess with that landscape of people's primitiveness and lack of care for each other or a certain amount of um, self-interest that gets out of control, when there are acts of kindness or moments of grace that's what really stands out. So I'm thinking about your relationship with your brother Martin and how even as a small child he was able to yeah. to muster a certain amount of care and stability and an adult level 
of discipline on himself to be able to lead mm-hmm. you out of the darkness. I mean, that's such a testimony in itself to what humans are able to achieve. I know I wouldn't have survived psychologically without my brother. Mm. Tell us what your feeling was bringing it back to Adolf Eichmann and the trial when he was captured and then tried for war crimes. You must have had very complicated and full and disturbing feelings about what was going on. Uh, It meant a huge amount to me because it represented that the Nazis didn't get away with it completely. The Eichmann trial represented a warning to the human race that you're not going to be able to get away with it if you think you can act in the way they did and label some people to be got rid of and all that horror, which is still there in the human race Mm. and comes up every now and again in the way that some group wants to rule the world and get rid of others. We're a pretty nasty species. One of the things that observers at the time remarked on, and because the trial was videotaped, so we have the archive Mm. footage to look at, but everyone does remark on how placid, how bland Eichmann's effect was. So he's there uh, on the witness stand portraying himself as this unassuming bureaucrat, paper pusher. What did you make of that, you know, contrasted against the enormity of his crimes? Well, with my own training in psychotherapy and and human psychology, I could see what was going on. Right. How he was suppressing. And so was he suppressing it? to himself or just for the benefit of others, of portraying himself as a different, more benign character? Oh, absolutely both. The Nazi ideology was so ingrained in those that subscribed to it that it consumed their whole being. I don't think he had any difficulty in simply being that, which was his protection. I don't think he was capable of really being in touch with his actions like normal people. Right. Later in life, Ruth, did you get in contact with any of the other children from the kinder transport to oh, share your experiences? Oh, yes. There's a, the reunion of kinder transport. Bertha Leverton decided to hold a um, conference of the kinder transport many years ago. And that was a huge thing. She had to keep hiring bigger and bigger halls (laughs) as as more and more registrations came in. And it's been going ever since. I I learned so much about our history, as I think we all did. We shared our experiences and a lot of research was done around it at that time. I'm sure some of those people that that, that you met then you, you hadn't met before, but did you instinctively feel... A solidarity. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it was a safe atmosphere because we'd all been through that experience in our individual ways that it was safe to talk about anything. 
whereas we were all very conscious about safe situations in which to talk and not talk. Isn't that interesting? Like, even as a child, you know, you don't have enough awareness of the world or self-awareness to understand why you're doing something, but instinctively you, you know yes. you have to protect yourself. Yes. Instinctively, I didn't talk about it as yeah. a child. And now you talk about it all the time. You give testimony <laughs> yes. to your, to your yes. life. Yes. Uh, you talk about the Holocaust. You share your, you know, what you've witnessed across schools and colleges and universities. Why do you think it's important for you to do that? Oh, I think it's hugely important not to blow my own trumpet, but because it's still going on. The way that the Muslim Uyghurs are treated in China is exactly the same story. Yes. The human race has not learned. And that is the message that I try to get across. Why aren't we protesting? How many of us in this country have bothered to write to our MP and say, look, this isn't acceptable. Will you t please take it to uh, the House of Commons and at least discuss it? Ruth, I think sometimes the numbers involved in the Holocaust are so vast, it's almost impossible to compute and it's impossible to think of those millions as individual people. So I've found it fascinating when reading about the Kindertransport just to go through some of the careers that children who were brought over to England went on to have because you then get a sense, Katie, of this, of this vast loss all the things that these people could have been. Yeah. You know, you look down the list, Ruth, and we've got sociologists, we've got immunologists, we've got mathematicians, historians, we've got literary critics, actors, physiologists, poets, sculptors, this vast range of careers that the Kindertransport kids went on to have. Well, I think on the whole, they're probably, like I am, grateful that we were rescued. And uh, I want to give into the community that has given me so much. Ruth, your memoir is called Person of No Nationality. What is the significance of that title? Person of No Nationality was written in those large letters across the travel document that I had to use going backwards and forwards between England and Germany or anywhere else until I was 18 and could have a British passport. That's quite a bleak statement. It sort of takes away your personhood. How did you feel when you saw that description of yourself? It didn't bother me until I started using the paper instead of a passport, which I couldn't have, to go abroad, yeah. to visit Germany regularly. And uh, officials at the border looked at it suspiciously, and then they looked at me suspiciously. So it was pretty awful having to use that piece of paper instead of a passport. And when you got your passport, what happened to that piece of paper? Unfortunately, I ripped it up. Oh. I wish I had kept it as a souvenir, but I was so pleased to have my lovely British passport <laughs> that I ripped it to shreds. Ruth, you celebrated your golden wedding anniversary in 2008 with the man that you converted to Judaism for. You have three children, two grandchildren. What a huge accomplishment from such uneasy beginnings. You must look back on your life and think, what? Gratitude? Surprise? What are your feelings? 
Well, of course, I'm grateful for having been rescued and having a chance to live my life and to give into the community. I would like more people to feel the wish to give into the community as much as to take from it. It also occurs to me, listening to your incredible story, Ruth, how tenuous our existence is as human yeah. beings. You know, it's just kind of dumb luck mm. that you ended up on the kinder transport coming to Britain. I mean, something else could have happened that was much worse. And the fact that humans are able to thrive in very uncomfortable and often untenable situations. I think that's absolutely so. And I think there is hope in the fact that there are such a lot of good people mm. as well as the ones that uh, create mayhem and mischief. Ruth, it's been fascinating listening to your story and it's been wonderful to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity and the privilege, as you probably realise, uh, I like talking with people. <laughs> <laughs> This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So, last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon and it was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? 
Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Katie, I have been looking forward to today's episode and Ruth did not disappoint. She didn't disappoint. You know what? She's cool as a cucumber about it and... I think there's something kind of impressive about that generation of people where life sucks and yet she doesn't really see fit to dwell on it. There were so many times in her story, Katie, when my heartstrings were a twanging for her brother Martin. Oh, yeah. I mean, my God, that kid rose to the occasion. I think there's times where in order to save your skin, the only thing you can do really is to protect those around you who are even more vulnerable than you are. And that's what her older brother instinctively did with her. Yeah. And the other perspective I was constantly thinking of there, Katie, was that of her parents, you know, as someone who's got two young boys, just trying to imagine the horrors that they were going through, their reaction to it, the, the sense of optimism, I guess, mixed with loss that you would get sending your children off to a foreign country and then that long wait for a reconciliation which doesn't turn out to be the happy ending you've probably been dreaming of for years. Yeah, it's just a whole complex mush being a human being, that's for sure. So Katie, that was Ruth's story of the kinder transport. Just an incredible story. I mean, Ruth wanted to really put forward that, you know, she was just only one of those 10,000 and all of them were courageous in the light of how uncertain their futures were. I mean, I just can't even imagine being a child and having to cope with that. Yeah, absolutely. And if you haven't done already, do listen to the first part of our Eichmann episode with Stephen Lucker, the senior curator at the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. And listeners, if you have any ideas for fabulous guests like Ruth, you can email us at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. And also make sure that you check out our merch, including incredible T-shirts and tea towels, which are my personal poison at spreadthatfire.com. And what do we have for next week? Katie, next week we are talking about A Stranger in a Strange Land. Which is a book. Very, very thick book with some saucy sections. Well, saucy, (laughs) it depends on your palate if you think that these are saucy. But it's sci-fi, that's for sure. Crowd Network. Place where you belong. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? 
And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern whales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.